hey hey we are back welcome to crime pursuit podcast i'm your host ed bounds along with denise and we have a brand new pursuit denise lay it on us joseph lived with his mother while he worked at the landscaping company adrian said that on july 20th 2006 her son left home in the morning to go to work as usual he would typically return home in the early evening around 6 p.m she said When Adrian arrived home later that night, she expected to find Joseph there, but the house was empty. Adrian just assumed Joseph went out after work, as he sometimes did to shoot pool with coworkers and friends. But a call from her ex-husband, Joseph's father Bob, around 11.30 p.m. changed everything. His voice was shaking and he told me our baby was gone. Adrian said, I started screaming and crying like, what do you mean gone? He then told Adrian what had happened. Bob told me that he was run over by an industrial piece of equipment at work, Adrian said. It was the most agonizing heartbreak. And yes, it was. I mean, I can just imagine her getting that phone call, so... Um, that would be horrible for any mother to hear that, to be told that her son, that she would never see him again. Well, tonight we have Joseph's mother as our guest. Adrian Miranda um, is the mother of Joseph Miranda, and she is here to tell her story. Adrian, how you doing? Um, hanging in there, doing the best I can, Ed. Thank you. I know you are. So let's talk about your son Joseph. Let's, let's talk about the early years. What kind of kid was he? Well, as a young as a young boy, he was a uh, he was always just you know happy and uh, you know loved um, just loved everybody. He had a hug for everybody. He was a very affectionate uh, little boy and also a very affectionate young man. And um, he always had a special he always had a special love for nature. He uh, you know even as a young child he. He loved turtles, and he loved, um, you know, the bunnies, and and uh, just 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 God's green earth. He re- he really did, and you know, he was born on Earth Day, April twenty second. I always say God sent him on the right day because he was a nature lover, and um, he truly um, he had a hug for everyone. He was very loving, very compassionate, um, very very beautiful heart. And he, uh, his smile lit up a room. Joseph was, you know, he was happy. He always, and he extended that happiness. Had very strong faith, as I do. Loved the Lord. And um, he, uh, he did have, you know, a desire to work in landscaping. And <clears throat> that was when he uh, decided after high school. He graduated from Towson High School. And he decided after high school, um, he wanted to pursue a career in landscaping architect because in the summers he had worked different jobs at different like retail outlets that um, you know sold different kinds of you know trees shrubs uh, you know li- smaller landscaping outlets and he would work in the summer and he really he just got to love um, you know he knew about the plants the trees the shrubs everything and he could tell you how they would grow you know perennials annuals um, how tall they would grow, the name of every one of them. So he really had a passion for that. And uh, after high school, I had always, I have two sons, Rob, which is the older, and then Joseph. And I had always encouraged them, you know, to go to college and, uh, you know, pursue pursue their dreams. And um, after high school, when he graduated, he said, Mom, I knew, you know, you want me to go to school and I do want to, he said, but I really want to get my hands dirty and 
really understand landscaping and and the industry to become a landscaping architect. So that was when he decided to you know, look for a job, and he took on the job um, after graduating, as I said, at the age of 18. He took on the job at landscaping, uh, out, I'm sorry, outside Unlimited in landscaping. But he was just, Derzif was a beautiful soul, inside and out. He truly was. Okay. He'd give you the shirt off his back, and he actually did give a friend of my brother's the shirt off his back. Oh, oh, <laughs> I mean, wow. he literally did. Okay. Um, <laughs> let's talk about that horrible day. Okay. Uh, well, it was a Thursday, July 20th, 2006. And I do remember, sadly, I remember it vividly. And uh, it was Joseph and I. Rob was at school. He lived at school. You know, he went to University of Maryland. So he was, you know, on the campus um, living uh, away from home. But Joseph was here with me and um, living here, of course. Um, my, my ex and I, we were divorced uh, when the boys were about 11 and 8. And I had, you know, sole physical custody of my children. I wanted to keep them in their community, you know, in their schools, in their churches, with their friends. So, um, you know, he was here with me. And um, he would get up for work, it seemed like about 5 o'clock in the morning, because with landscaping, you know, they start very early in that industry. So he would get up like 5, you know, uh, and because uh, sometimes he'd have to be at work at 6 or 6.30, and Outside Unlimited, Inc., which is where he worked, is about, I guess, 25 minutes, like 25 minutes from, yeah, 25 minutes, 30 minutes from where we live. And I would be getting up, you know, just, you know, having a cup of coffee, getting myself together for work. And on that morning, you know, I I um, knew that he was getting ready to leave, and he would always say, you know, bye, Mom, I love you. We would always say, I love you. My whole family does that always, because you just, you just never know, and we're a very loving family. And um, he said, bye, Mom, I love you. I said, I love you. And uh, I never laid eyes on my, my boy again. And, um, you know, I went off to work, of course, that, that day. And uh, when I came home in the evening, you know, I was... Uh, and Joseph and I talked every day. You know, we, of course, he lived with me. But, I mean, sometimes he would call. You know, we would just check in, call, talk to each other. You know, just how you doing? How's the day going? Right, right. But, um, but that day... Uh, you know, I didn't hear from Joseph when I got home, and because um, I figured he'd be coming in around six o'clock. Sometimes they'd have to work overtime, but you know, uh, he would usually let me know. Um, and then sometimes again, he would go out with his friends, as Denise had said. But um, I thought, well, he'll be coming, and it was uh, around. You know, it was. I'm a I'm a news person. I like to watch the news, and I was watching like the eleven o'clock news, and you know just getting myself together, ready for bed, and I thought, well, Joseph will be coming. And that, that of course, was, you know, it was about 11.15, 11.30 when I got the call from his dad, Bob. And what we learned at first was that Joseph was uh, run over, run over by what's called a bobcat. Uh, you know, uh, it's just like a earth mover. And it just didn't make any sense. It just made no sense to us. And, of course, I was in shock. I was just wailing, crying, wailing, and, you know, when I did get the call, I remember I just, I screamed, I dropped the phone, I fell to my knees, I grabbed Joseph's picture and held it to my heart, and I was home alone, and I went to call my mom, and she was crying and said she heard, and she was on her way, and my sister and my son, you know, so I remember I was, like, scratching at the, just running through the house, like, just crying and scratching at the front window, like, 
just looking for headlights for somebody to please, like somebody to come, please come. And then, you know, I did. My my mother, my sister, you know, my family, Joseph's good friends, they started, you know, arriving and trying to console me. And they were, of course, just crying themselves. You know, it's there's no there's no really way to describe the agony and the unbearable pain that a mother feels when her child is killed, you know died and it dies killed whatever but you're just gone it's you know, to bury your child is unnatural you know typically you know um your children bury you and joseph again was 19 years old you know he was at that age where you know he had so many uh hopes and dreams and aspirations he knew he wanted to be a dad one day and have three children i mean we shared many many beautiful conversations and what we first heard uh, when the corporal called that night, because we didn't hear from the police, his dad got a call about 11.15, called me about 11.30, and then I got a call about 12 o'clock. Joseph was killed about 3.45, 4 o'clock in the afternoon, like what? that. Yes. So it took them about, you know, um, uh, eight eight hours to call us. So why did it, did you ever ask why it took so long for them to call, call I you? I did. Okay. Yes, yes, Ed, I did. And they never really answered me. My son had every one of my contact phone numbers in his personnel file. I know that he did. And, you know, I have the, I have the sheet because I, I did end up getting all the reports and everything because I had to exercise my Freedom of Information Act rights. But I remember watching Joseph fill out the form sitting at our kitchen table. And he had my cell phone, my home phone, my, my work phone. But they, they didn't call till eight hours after. And that it did seem strange, and I have a friend, his name is Matt, who, um, who is a police officer, and, you know, he's very close to our family. He came that night as well, and it was a corporal David, corporal David Kitzinger with the Maryland State Police that called, and it was around 12 o'clock, and I was just crying and asking what happened, what happened to my child, and he was trying to say that, you know, it was you know, an earth mover, a bobcat, and that Joseph was run over. And I had seen like a bobcat, you know, I'm, I don't know that much about that equipment. I do now, but I had seen a bobcat. And I remember thinking that like they're open in the front, you know, they're completely open. Yes, they are. And I, I remember I just, I tried to like the first, well, the first thing I said was, I want to go see my son. I need to go hold my child. And he kept saying, you can't. And I said, what do you mean? I can't. I need to hold my child because I didn't know all the details then right. just that Joseph was killed and I longed to hold my baby and see my child you know and just hold him and he kept saying you can't and I said why I said where is my son he said he's at the morgue I said well I'm going and then he asked to speak with someone else so my sister got on the phone my sister Lisa and she said she asked him, you know, too, like, what happened? Like, what happened? And he just said, we don't know yet. We just know that Joseph was run over by a, by a uh, bobcat. And she she was saying, um, you know, you, you don't really under, you don't know anything about it. You don't know. He, and he did, he did tell us that it was a crime, crime scene. It was a criminal investigation. And that they had to, you know, look into things, you know, that they just, they had to, to learn more and look into things. And so uh, then, and my sister said, why can't my, 
sister. Why can't she go and see her son? And then he asked, he said, and then that got on the phone, my friend that's the police officer. And he was, you know, calmer, a little calmer than us. And he just said, you know, officer, he said, you know, um, he said, I work with Baltimore County, you know, and he just said, um, you know, I'm, a, I'm an officer. He said, and I just, I want to know, can, can, can't you tell us anything? Like, you know, what, what do you believe happened? He said, we, we just don't know. We just know that Joseph was found on the ground, you know, um, on his stomach. He just said he was found on the ground and the bobcat ran over him and Adrian cannot go and see her son. And he just said, um, you know, uh, and he explained to Matt because of his injuries, because of Joe's injuries to the severe injuries. Okay. He was telling Matt to his face, head and neck. And then I got back on the sun, and I and uh, and he did say he asked him why did it take so long for you to call you know, eight hours why yeah why and he didn't he didn't really offer him any explanation and then he asked to talk to me again and I just said you know um, he just said just remember your son the way he was and of course that seemed even it just seemed like Im- impossible to, to bear. You know what I mean? Like I'm never going to see my child again. Like like it like he walked out the door. Bye, mom. I love you. I'm never going to see my child again. And 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 then um, you know. So then I, I just he said he would call me in about two weeks. You know they're starting their investigation. He would call me in about two weeks and and he would like keep me updated. You know keep me updated on how things were progressing and I thanked him you know I thanked him and he just said you know I can't remember your son the way he was so we hung up and you know I I just I was inconsolable Ed Uh, I was well I understand I understand I really do yeah and um so you know that night I I didn't sleep my sister called my um my doctor he called she called my um internist and told him of course you know he he felt so bad, and he prescribed something just to help me sort of relax or maybe try to get a little sleep or something because I was just, I was a wreck. And I still didn't sleep that night. I remember my son, my son Rob, like, you know, was just holding me and, and Matt and my sister. And, you know, I was just really up all night just crying. I, I think I cried for two years. I, do, I, do. I didn't, like, even my mom, like, she would stay with me. She, she, everybody was just, well, you know, it's unbearable. Right. And I remember right. my mom saying to me one time, she said, Adrian, you know, and she cried too so much. It was a grandson, you know, and she said, and there's five, we have five grandsons, you know, um, there were my, there's four of us, me, my sister, and my two brothers. And, you know, between the, th- the four of us, there's five grandsons. We didn't have any little girls, <laughs> but five grandsons. Okay. And um, and my sister, she had lost her son, too, her son, uh, Michael. And it was seven years before Joseph. But her son was killed um, by a reckless driver. Oh, okay. On the road by a reckless driver. And, um, you know, it... Uh, it wasn't it wasn't criminal or anything like that, but it was just you know again losing here we are losing a second child in our family. Right. And so, Joseph and Michael were very very close. So let me let me let me ask you this: You find out about your son. Um, you you have the funeral. What happens next? Okay. Well, actually, at the funeral, there are a couple of things that happen that I just want to mention to you because it gets to really the the core of the of the whole story regarding 
how the police responded and the owner of the company. The owner of this landscaping company, his name is Joseph Medved, Joseph Patrick Medved. And I had to just end up, of course, learning a lot about him because of the circumstance of everything that unfolded. And Joseph, we had to have a closed casket, of course. And um, uh, the day after Joseph was killed, on that Friday, I received a call from Joseph Medved, the owner. And he was offering his condolences. And, you know, he was saying that he was so sorry and that he was going to have a wake for Joseph you know, um, and would take care of the funeral and all of that. And I said, well, thank you, Mr. Medved. That's very kind and generous of you. I said, but what happened to my son? What happened? You know, were you there that day? You know, he said, yes, I was. He said, but I really don't know. I said, you don't know what happened? He said, no, I don't. He said, we think it was an accident, and um, but we don't, we just don't really know. He said, and, you know, I, I want to um, take care of, everything, you know, the funeral expenses and all of that. And I said, well, I do appreciate that. I said, but I need to understand how this could possibly happen. You know, a bobcat, you know, it's open in the front. And if my son was run over, Joseph was five foot 11, it's broad daylight. How would the driver not see my child? How's that possible? He just said, you know, I really don't know. He said, um, he said, you know, we're, we're, we're uh, you know, we're, I offer my condolences. And then he said, please work with me, Miss Miranda, please work with me. And I, I didn't understand what that meant, but I thought it sounded strange. Please work with him. Well, what does that mean? And so he just said, you know, he was very sorry. And he said something about they were going to have a bell made, you know, like a brass bell, large bell made and ring it at 12 o'clock in memory of Joseph and all. Well, that, there was never any bell made, but he said that. And I just said, you know, thank you and for your generosity. And um, and that was that. And then later that day, Michael Martin, who was the vice president of the company, he called and offered his condolences and basically just said that um, he was very sorry and that Joseph was very bright, very, very talented, a quick study. You know, he really you know, knew what he was doing. And he was um, very, very smart, smart. And within the year, Joseph had gotten two promotions, and they made him a foreman. He was first started, you know, as they all do at the entry level, and then he was promoted to an assistant foreman, and then he was promoted to a foreman. So, and he was, you know, Joseph was very happy about that. You know, he he was really, you know, working hard and learning. And, um, you know, and Michael Martin, again, just had said he was very talented, very creative, you know, and very sorry. And I thanked him. And then... On the night that, the first night that we had the viewing, so to speak, even though it was a closed casket, I mean, oh my gosh, so many people came and tried to comfort me, and it was like, uh, Joseph was very popular. He was, you know, like I said, he was all, he was outgoing, you know, and made so many friends, and he drove a Jeep Cherokee, and he, he, you know, he would, he would just, he would even, I remember sometimes in the morning, I remember there were, the, the company hired a lot of, um, a lot of men of Mexican descent. And um, I know sometimes that he would, um, when I would pack him lunch, you know, I'd usually pack him two sandwiches at least, you know, and just a nice, you know, a nice um, lunch for, you know, a healthy, growing young man. And sometimes he would come and he would say, Mom, I'm going to be really hungry tomorrow. Will you pack me 12 sandwiches? And I'd say, okay, <laughs> 12 sandwiches, sure. 
but I knew what he was doing, and he was like sharing with some of the laborers, some of the some of the workmen. Oh, okay. Who you know were um, I mean, because what I learned at over all this time, it's been thirteen years now, as I still fight for justice for my child. But I did learn, you know, that um, just in the industry and in all the industries really in our country, um, as um, I'm sure many of his, we know for a fact that many of Mr. Medved's um, workers didn't have their, their papers, you know, their visas or their, right. um, you know, and he would sort of house them. He had, the man is very wealthy and he had different like um, houses that had like diff- different rooms in them and sometimes in apartments and he would house them. And, but they basically pay them minuscule wages minuscule wages and they're oh, yeah, they always do they do and they stuff their own greedy pockets yep i'm just saying and i know that was the case here you know i ended up finding out that was the case with with outside unlimited and um on the day that on that evening uh and i could see how love joseph was by everyone i knew that he was but it was just like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people that came because i remember even at the church we had a funeral mass there were people, the church was filled. There were people even standing outside. There were there were so many, many people. And, and I it really warmed my heart. It warmed my broken heart to see such love for Joseph. And um, But I remember that night as I was receiving people, you know, to offer their condolences. And my family, of course, was all there. And um, Joseph Medved came and Michael Martin came with their wives. And... Um, you know, had offered their condolences and sat back down, you know, and then um, I was again receiving other guests and my brother, uh, my brothers and my sister were standing sort of right by me and he happened to get up and come over to me, Joseph Medved, and he said um, to me and Bob, and he said, I just want to let you know that it's already been declared an accident and all my employees have their green cards. It was the oddest thing for someone to say. Now this, I am. now this was the owner that said this to you, right? This is the owner. Okay, okay. Yeah, the, is that what you said? Is this the owner? Yeah, yeah, the owner. Okay. The company owner. And he hands us a card, a business card from Mosh. Mosh is the Maryland Occupation of Safety and Health. You know, they're supposed to make sure that businesses are in compliance with having their, um, all businesses, you know, having everything to meet their safety standards. And the man's name was Brian Timberlake. That was the name on the card. And he had his business card. And he just said, you know, again, he said he handed Bob a card and me a card and said, you know, that it was just an accident. Mosh said it was an accident. And all my employees have their green cards. And then he sat back down. And I remember my brother and my sister and I, like, Bob, we we just looked at each other, you know, kind of like, like, wasn't that weird? Like, wasn't that, you know, wasn't that odd? Just out of the blue. Who's asking about, you know, I learned that later, like, you know, because I had to find out so much about the company and just their operation. But I'm saying, what a thing to do. Well, I'm grieving my child on the first night that we're at the funeral home, you know, in that setting. It just it just was was strange. You you understand? Yes, I I definitely understand. And and you know I would have I would have set off some red flags for me 
Absolutely. Absolutely. That's what it did. And even when he said to me, please work with me, Miranda, Miss Miranda, please work with me. It just, it was red flags. It was like, this man is acting strange. He's acting strange. But anyway, and, and we did, we had to have a closed casket and my son, um, we had pictures, of course, and poster boards and everything of Joseph throughout his life, you know, as an infant and toddler. And he did love the water. He, he loved the water. He, you know, he got to learn how to surf. And, you know, he always, he loved to crab and, you know, he liked to fish. And he just loved the water. And um, we had pictures of everything. And then his brother put together like a montage of just pictures of him throughout his life and with music to it you know some of joseph's favorite songs and it was beautiful okay so we had that playing at like two areas of the of the um at the funeral home we had the largest room there to to be able to um accommodate everyone you know okay let's get right to the the investigation what started this from being an accident to a homicide? Okay. Well, it first started that, and and I would say that Mosh, you know, Mosh, while they um, investigate, you know, for compliance and safety, they really, they have nothing to do with determining what someone's death is. They don't declare anything as far as whether it's, you know, a crime. or That's, that's the poli- job of the police, not Mosh. They, they, their, you know, their mission is to find out if the company had everything as far as safety requirements. But anyway, on that day, um, what we were told was uh, Joseph again. Like I said, he he worked. There were two sides of the company: a residential side and a commercial side. And Joseph, when he was hired, had the option to work on either side, and he chose the commercial side because he thought he would learn more and wanted to become, again, a landscaping architect. And then there was a residential side. And Joseph was working on the school here in Maryland, in Baltimore County. It's called the Windsor Mill Middle School. And Outside Unlimited had won the landscaping contract for that school. It was being built. And it was the first STEM school in the nation, S-T-E-M, Science, Technology, Engineering, and Math. That's the acronym. That's what STEM stands for. And Outside Unlimited had won the contract. So Joseph was working on that job with his crew that day. And from what we learned, you know, over the year that the almost quite almost a year that um, the Maryland State Police investigated it, uh, they were telling us that Joseph needed the Bobcat. You know, he came back. He came back from his job at Windsor Mill Middle School at about, I guess, 3.30 in the afternoon, like that, or, you know, 3.15 in the afternoon with his, with his crew. And his supervisor, his name is Eric Magala, he said to Joseph, we need to load 20 trees for the school tomorrow. I mean, you know, it's July 20th. The school's going to be opening, you know, the last week in August or first week in September. You know, we, we need to load 20 trees because that school's going to be opening soon. And he said, Joseph, go get that bobcat. And he pointed sort of up a little bit, you know, up to the to the road. He said, they're just loading dirt. You know, go get the bobcat because we need to load 20 trees. So Joseph said, okay. You know, he's following the instructions of his supervisor. So he walks up the slight incline, 
you know, to where the bobcat is, and he sees that the bobcat is stopped. And it was the hottest day of the year that I remember them saying it on the news. It was hot, really a hot day, a hot July summer day. And Joseph was drinking a cold soda. He had said to me earlier, just, you know, just in conversation, he had said to me, um, Mom, you ever drink Dr. Pepper? And this was like, you know, months, months, months earlier, the year earlier or whatever. And I said, maybe maybe years ago, I said, you know, I might have tried it years ago. I said, but you know, Mom, I said, I'm a Pepsi girl. And I, I was, you know, Coke, Pepsi, Coke, Pepsi. But I didn't, I don't drink sodas now at all. But at that time, and he said, I really like Dr. Pepper. He said, you know, I'm drinking it and I really like it. I said, I know, I know you do. I said, you yeah, know, that's, that's good. But I remember that was his favorite soda, his favorite drink. And um, uh, he was, and this is important because, you know, he's drinking, you know, a, a, it's a plastic bottle of Dr. You know, they got out of a, you know, canteen or something there the, um, in the garage or in the offices there. And he's drinking it and he's walking up and he sees that the bobcat is stopped. You know, the engine is running, but that the driver is stopped. And he waves, the driver's name is Antonio, Antonio Rubio. And he waves Antonio down, you know, and makes eye contact with him. And Antonio, like, nods to Joseph, like he sees Joseph approaching. And he, because the engine is loud, you know, Antonio sort of leaned out, and Joseph leaned in, and Joseph said, you know, he called him Tuno. He said, Tuno, need to use Bobcat. Load, I have to load 20 trees. Load 20 trees, need Bobcat. And Antonio said, like, he, he nodded yes, he said, and he called Joseph Jose, and he said, Jose, can we just load one more, one more bucket? And he says in his report, you know, Antonio says, and Joseph agreed, said, sure. So he watched Joseph walk past the left side of the cage. A bobcat has, like, it's open in the front. It only has a, per, a seat for one person, and the person sort of sits low, you know, in it. And there's, like, open cages sort of on the side, if you know what I mean, um, you know, like, um, just so the driver, the driver can sort of see out the side, but it's completely open in the front and there's an obstructed rear view, you know, and all of them are supposed to have backup alarms because any, you know, that's again, a law, a safety law, any, uh, any equipment or truck or anything that backs up, it doesn't have, that has an obstructed rear view has to have a backup alarm. You know, we hear them all the time, the beep, 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 you know, you yeah. hear them. And... So um, he said he watched Joseph clear, you know, the left side of the cage to go wait to the area where Paul Godwin was standing. Now, Paul Godwin was a laborer. He was also 19 years old. He had been there six months, and he was the spotter, so-called spotter for Antonio. Okay. So, And you know what a spotter does, and that's if other work trips... Right, what right, right. Right, okay. So... Um, so that's what Antonio said. So, so Antonio waited a minute before backing up because his next move would have been to back up, you know, a couple feet and like sort of turn the wheels to the left to straighten out the bobcat before going forward again to pick up the last load of dirt, you know. And then basically what he does is he picks up, that's the motion, you pick up the, the bucket of dirt, you turn the bobcat, you come back and then go towards the side of the dump truck, you lift the bucket up, you dump it, and you come back down. And then you back up again. Do you understand? And you go forward again. And they had loaded, 
and unloaded about five, six loads of dirt. So it was a repeated motion. Do you understand what I'm saying? It was mm-hmm. a repeated motion. Okay. So Paul Godwin, being the spotter, you know, he knew how that bobcat was going to maneuver, you know, back up, you know, or go forward and when. And, of course, when Joseph, you know, walked up, you know, Antonio, as he said in his report, he had finished, you know, he'd done that last, not the last, but the second to the last bucket of dirt. He had he had emptied it in, lifted up, emptied it into the dump truck, bought the, bought the bucket down, and, you know, stopped. And and he that's when Joseph happened to walk up, he was stopped before he would take that backup motion. You know, but, but you know, Joseph wasn't sure exactly, you know, what they were doing. I mean, he knew they were loading dirt, but he wasn't sure of what the next move was or this, that, or the other. He didn't have to know. He just saw him stopped and looked at him, made eye contact, waved him down, and, you know, to make sure it was safe. And then they had their, their conversation, their brief conversation, and, of course, they had to elevate their voices because the engine is loud, as I said. And um, Joseph agreed they could load one more dirt, one more bucket. And then Antonio says that he waited a minute. He knew that Joe went to walk away. He was standing to the area where Paul Godwin was standing. And he went to back up about three or four feet. So he's backing up about three or four feet. He stops. And then he says... All of a sudden, to the left corner, he sees Paul Godwin standing there with his hand, like moving his hand across his neck, like to stop, to wave, to wave, like to tell Rubio to stop. I mean, yeah, to tell Antonio Rubio to stop. So Antonio stops, you know, after backing up, and he looks down and he sees a pool of blood, a pool of blood, and he doesn't even... He doesn't even turn off the machine. He just jumps out and sees Joseph flat on his stomach underneath the bobcat, crushed to death. Wow. And he screams and he cries and he pounds on his chest. He's begging for a priest. And Paul Godwin goes in the office and says, Joe Miranda is dead. Okay, so I don't know. You said your son was 19 years old, correct? Yes. Okay. And with him being a foreman and moving up so quickly on the job, being so young, do you think he had any enemies on the job? I'm sorry, do I think he had any what? Enemies? Like, do you think Paul and him had any uh, issues? Yes, that's a good question, Denise, I do. We think that's part of the reason that Paul Godwin, I mean, we truly believe that he saw the opportunity and he took it. And we know Joseph was pushed. He was pushed, he was shoved into the path of that reversing bobcat and crushed to death. He was pushed by Paul Godwin. And we believe Paul Godwin was envious, had jealousy, and like hate for Joseph. Joseph was popular. Joseph, them being the same age, he had watched Joseph, you know, be promoted to a foreman. He was still a laborer. And you can see, it's a very good question, because you can see that on the sign-in sheets, on July 19th, the day before, because I got everything, and on the sign-in sheets where they sign in, you know, the workers sign in, on July 19th, the day before Joseph was killed, he's, you can see Paul Godwin, and they put their position, and next to it it says labor, you know, Joseph, Joe Miranda, you know, foreman, and, you know, these other, like, you know, about 25 other, on this particular sheet, about 25 other names, and, you know, what they are, you know, a foreman or a laborer, or uh, a mechanic, 
your or somebody in maintenance, you know, or um, a supervisor, you know, and or a project manager. And in the police report, Paul Godwin says he is a he is a foreman. He's not a foreman. He's a laborer. So obviously that meant something to him. Like he lied to the police about many things, but he wasn't a he wasn't a foreman. He was a laborer. I'm just saying, it, you know, it does matter because not that Joseph, Joseph wasn't someone, it wasn't his personality. He wasn't someone to throw his weight around or to, you know, whatever. Joseph was friendly and kind and had a hug for everyone, you know, and, and treated everyone equally. But he was a foreman. And and we believe it was like, it, it he had envy. Paul Godwin had envy and, and jealousy for Joseph. And Joseph was very popular. Um, well, let me ask you this. Let me, let me ask you this. So the criminal investigation, what, where did this go south with the detective that was overseeing your son's case? Well, the, 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 the first one that they put on the case was, his name was Corporal David Kitzinger. And he was the homicide detective that they put on the case. And, um, as time, you know, as the months went by and we did end up having a couple meetings with him and then with the um, commander of the barrack and uh, another sergeant. And also, I just need to let you know, the 90-acre property there where the offices are and the 90-acre property where Outside Unlimited Mr. Medved owns, the Baltimore County, Carroll County line runs right between it. And there are 23 counties in Baltimore. There are 23 counties in Maryland. And when my son was first killed that day, the Baltimore County Police went, arrived at the scene, and the Maryland State Police arrived at the scene. And the owner kept saying that my son was in Carroll County. And the, the one of the Maryland State Police said, I think the young man lays on the Baltimore County side of the property. And he kept saying, no, he isn't. I know my property. He's on Carroll County side. So the Baltimore County Police left, and the Maryland State Police took, you know, took the case. Because there's no Carroll County Police. I'm just saying of all the counties, it's kind of strange. But in Carroll County, they don't have a Carroll County District. The Maryland State Police are the ones that respond to any kind of crime or anything like that. And it ended up, I'm just saying, that my son was killed in Baltimore County. He was. I had to order a survey. I had to beg for a survey to be done. But this Corporal Kitzinger, um, he, when, he, when they first interviewed Paul Godwin and Antonio Rubio, um, you know, Paul Godwin wants to say that the uh, bobcat was going forward, and there's only backup tread marks. But he lies and says the bobcat was going forward, and he says that there was pushing because he got irritated. So that tells you his reference, his reference of like how he was, how his, how his, how he was feeling that day at that time. Paul Godwin was irritated because Joe needed the bobcat. Yet Joseph said, "Sure, you know, you know." Um, unload, get your get your last bucket, he had said to, to the driver. And it ended up that um, we found out, you know, they kept they were, what the Maryland State Police did was they lied to us. They, they lied right to our faces. They had this closing meeting on July 11th, 2007. And Joseph was killed July 20th, 2006. So it was almost a year, not quite a year. And at this meeting, they completely lied to our faces and we had known that this good detective his name is rick bechtel he went out he was a senior detective because what corporal kitzinger was saying didn't make any sense to him 
and he was like in a supervisory position. So he's the one that did go out, and he took a Spanish interpreter with him, and they asked the driver questions. He sat in the Bobcat. They had him reconstruct exactly what happened that day. He says he definitely was backing up. Joseph never jumped on a tire, like he never did anything, Paul Godwin says. Because Godwin wants to say that it was going forward, and Joseph jumped, ran and jumped on top of the left front tire and fell through and got sucked underneath. There's only 16 inches between the two tires, and there's an undercarriage that sits nine inches off the ground under the bobcat. Well, Joseph had no bro broken bones below his neck, none. It's impossible, Ed. Do you understand what I'm saying? What Paul Godwin says is impossible. And, and Antonio Rubio told the truth. And everything he said added up. And we know there was pushing. And we also know that the Maryland State Police ended up closing my son's case using an impossible scenario. Okay. So was there any witnesses that actually said that you're, they witnessed your son get murdered? Um, I don't know that I'd say witnesses. Paul Godwin. Paul Godwin was a witness, and the driver. The driver, what the driver is saying is, you know, that, and Paul Godwin wants to say, he says, he changes his story four times, and he refused a polygraph, refused a polygraph. Then he says that my son tried to pull Antonio Rubio out of the bobcat, or he tried to jump in, jump in, what, to sit on his lap? And Antonio Rubio says, never, never did, did, did that happen. No. Joe, never, never. So what I'm trying to, and then there were three Hispanic workers, uh, Marcelino and um, Jose Guadalupe and then Pedro. And they were driving by as Joe was walking up because they waved to Joe and Joe waved back. And they were in a truck, and they were parking a trailer. And they could see, like, as they were parking the trailer to the right side, they were, uh, Jose Guadalupe was in the front, like, and he could see out the side window, and Pedro was behind him. And as they were parking the trailer, which is probably maybe, like, I don't know, 30, 30, 30 40 feet away, you know, from the, from the drive, from the road, and Pedro screams. He, he all of a sudden screams. And Jose, Jose Guadalupe looked to the right. He's like, oh, my God, I can't believe what I just saw. And and then the driver, he was sort of getting a little nervous. But, but, but Jose's like, I can't believe what just happened to Joe. And all he really saw, and then there's a tree line there, but the trees aren't so close adjacent to each other. There's space between the trees, you know, on that road. But what he saw was Joe, like, forward, going forward, and, and like, just going down, and the bobcat backing up over Joseph. He couldn't see, like, in other words, what he saw was the result of Paul Godwin propelling Joseph, just pushing him into it. You, you know what I mean? Like, he knew Paul Godwin was the one that was up there with Joe, okay. you know, on that road, but he, he can't say that he actually, like, because of the trees... But it was only Paul Godwin and Joseph and the driver. So he saw, like, the result, like, like of, of, like, say you push somebody, you push somebody from behind, and, you know, Joseph is going to go down. If you're, if you're pushed from behind, you know, and you're going to go down. And 
it ends up that my son, like I'm saying, he was found completely on his stomach and underneath the bobcat. And he had no broken legs, no broken feet, no broken hips, no broken back, nothing like that. You couldn't fall through the 16 inches and the undercarriage. You'd have, you'd have broken everything. You'd have broken feet, broken, broken you, a contortionist midget couldn't do it. You just couldn't do it. So Joseph was already flat on the ground. How did he get flat on the ground? My son doesn't, you know, take a nap on a dirt road. So, you know, and, and the left rear tire was found. There's only backup tread marks. The left rear tire was found behind Joseph's left armpit. There's only backup tread marks. And under the left front tire is a crushed Dr. Pepper. It flung out of my son's hand. Do you understand? As he was pushed, shoved into it. And all of the facts, the science, the physics, the evidence, the... Um, the statements of Paul Godwin, it proves it. The medical examiners studied. They finally got all the crime scene photographs. When Joseph was first killed on the day, the Maryland State Police sent only one photograph while they had 91. They sent the paperwork saying accident while they were conducting a criminal investigation. That's what the Maryland State Police did. Then Detective Bactell, when he said, you know, this isn't making sense as far as any forward or anything like that. You know, he saw the pictures and then he did his own reconstruction. They didn't bring in a reconstructionist for my son. And the police do that all day, every day, anytime there's a vehicle involved and someone is killed. But they didn't for my son. Now, what? how many times have you guys been to the prosecutor's office? Well, we were at the prosecutor's just one time and in when the Maryland State Police had the case. And that was when we met, well, that was when we met in Carroll County, and it was the closing meeting. And the prosecutor was there, Jerry Barnes, and he screamed at us, threatened us not to go to the media. Um, and um, when we asked Detective Bactell, I mean, when we asked, I'm sorry, Detective Kitzinger, where is Detective Bactell's report? Because we knew about it from the medical examiner. He told us Detective Bactell came and saw him and showed him the pictures. And then he realized, okay, this isn't, this is making sense. The young man is, you know, so he went to the chief medical examiner, Dr. Ali did, the other medical examiner. And they decided, they, they said, this is, we're going to make this undetermined with a strong possibility of homicide because they need to further investigate this. Because Detective Rick Bechtel said, this is foul play here. This is foul play. This is no accident. Okay, so then, what, what made him determine that? Did he tell you? Well, as I'm saying, Detective Rick Bechtel he had gone out in October and interviewed the driver himself and had the driver reconstruct exactly what happened. Right, okay. And by doing that, they realized, and there's only backup tread marks in the picture, but you have to remember, Dr. Ali, they had to write a letter to the Maryland State Police, the medical examiners did, to insist that they send all the crime scene photographs immediately. I mean, why? Why would they only send one crime scene photograph? Do you understand, Ed? Yeah. They had 91, and the hmm. pictures told everything. Right. And plus, Detective Bactel said Joseph was already prone. He was on the ground. So how did he get on the ground? You know, and the machine, the driver didn't realize Joseph was on the ground. There's an obstructed rear view. And all them people all standing out there, nobody yelled, said, whoa, hey, not, I mean, you know. That's There's not all these people standing. Most people hadn't returned from work yet. 
Those people, you know, they usually come back about 4.30 at the end of the day. So it was just Antonio Rubio, the, the, the um, driver, the spotter, and then the other three Mexicans that drove happened to come back, you know, at about like, you know, 3.45, I guess, you know, or whatever that day. Because when it happened, um, after right after it happened, uh, Jose Guadalupe did run out. He got out of the, he ran out and he went to see Joe and he saw that Joe was dead and that Joe was, his head, face and neck were crushed. And he ran and got another supervisor. He ran and said, like in Spanish, like, come, come, come quick. His name was Zachary Bradman. And he went. And then, then, you know, but that was after the fact. Okay, well, before the fact, how many people were standing out there before your son got killed? It was just Antonio Rugo driving the Bobcat and Paul Godwin, the spotter. Everyone else was out doing their jobs, Okay, you know, on sites. And then the people that are in the office, they're in the office. You can't see from the office, like, on that road. You, can, you know, I mean, you can't really, like, you're, the office is maybe 70 feet or, or, or I don't know, may, more than that maybe. You know, several, like, maybe it's, you know, 50 yards or whatever that the offices are. See when you said the when you said the spotter when you said him the spotter I was thinking there was another guy with the spotter so no, now it makes sense an, No there wasn't another guy with the spotter Okay no. okay The only guy with the spotter was when Joseph was told to go up and get the bobcat and he you know he waved him down he did everything correctly and he okay. went and waited you know cuz Antonio had asked him can we load one more bucket He's just drinking a soda. He said, sure. He went and waited. And Paul Godwin saw the opportunity, and he took it. Now it makes sense. It makes sense now. Okay. They did change it to a homicide by an assault because they saw that the, the driver was telling the truth. There are only backup tread marks. Paul Godwin says pushing. He says pushing. Later in a deposition, when they asked him about pushing, the attorney asked him about pushing in a civil deposition, he gets sort of antsy. He said, well, there wasn't really pushing. He said, I gave, and it says it right in the police report. And Paul Godman didn't know what we had, but we had the police report. And he says, well, the police got it wrong. He said, it wasn't pushing. He said, I gave Joe the one-two. And he puts his hands up like a boxing motion. And he says, the one-two? He says, yeah. And he says, well, um, what did Joe do? He said, nothing say nothing my son did nothing because he was dead what i'm trying to say is joseph wouldn't start a fight he wasn't you know he wasn't someone to fight but he would take up for himself joseph was an award-winning wrestler at school but he but he was he was agile he was quick but he wasn't somebody to pick any fight you know what i'm saying he wasn't that kind of person but um joseph had joseph had was not ever able to like respond or anything he was just he was just out of the blue he was just shoved, pushed, and if you saw the pictures and you saw how Joe lay underneath the bobcat, you would you would understand completely. Okay. And Joseph's arms, when he went down, his arms are like resting at his hips. In other words, typically when you're, if someone's pushing you down, you're going to break your fall. You're going to try to break as you go down your arms, like to put them out. Joseph was probably shoved or, or, or hit or knocked so hard 
that he may have been unconscious as he went down. Right, that would make sense. Do you understand sense. what I'm saying? Yes, like that would just, make right, sense. He just, yeah. went, he just went down. Right. But that was from, you know, that was from, Joseph didn't fall or trip over any shoelaces. His shoelaces weren't untied. Nobody ever said he did fall. Nothing like that. Nothing like that. He was thrown into it. And later, when the attorney says, well, tell me more about this one, too, uh, Paul Godwin acts, he had no remorse. He acts real sort of like cocky. And he says, I don't really like what you're insinuating. He's, he's 20 years old, and he's saying this to a 50-year-old you know, attorney. And he says, well, um, I'm not insinuating anything, Mr. Godwin. I'm just asking you questions. And it's my job to do that, and it's your job to answer them. He says, well, the one, too, it wasn't really extreme or violent, just a little bit. Just a little bit? Mm. A little bit to take the very life of my child. And then, you know, the, the medical examiners and doctor, the chief medical examiner, Dr. Ali, and even all the coroners, you know, they even, like, had them review it, too. And they all agreed, this is a homicide. This young man was thrown. He was shoved, pushed yeah. into... Bobcat. He sure was. Sound like it to me. Now, did you? Absolutely. Did the prosecutors? What reason did they give you that they was not going to prosecute? Because they kept saying, "What happened was Joseph jumped on top of a tire, the front tire, and it was going forward. The Bobcat was going forward, and he fell through. That's impossible. It's impossible. Yeah, I don't. They, I, yeah. Hang, they hang their hat on an proven impossible scenario and they're just saying it's an accident they're they're just they're disagreeing the prosecutor in baltimore county scott schellenberger in baltimore county because baltimore county ended up getting the case after they closed the case because my son wasn't even killed in carroll county and so baltimore county scott schellenberger promised an independent review of what the maryland state police did and they never did an independent review their 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 total um investigation consisted of about 20 pages and uh paul godwin was lawyered up by a criminal defense attorney and um so they couldn't talk to him and joe medved was lawyered up and uh but they they didn't really do anything and they ended up closing it the same way saying it was an accident just going against they went against the facts physics evidence proof Wow. Of the medical examiners. Wow. And Dr. Fowler, the chief, said to me, Adrian, this is unprecedented. A, a state's attorney, a prosecutor, has never gone against our findings. They were ready to go to court. The, the uh, medical examiners, they still are ready to go to trial. But they oppose their findings and say that what is impossible is what happened. Do you hear me, Ed? Do you hear what I'm saying? Yeah, I hear exactly what you're saying, and it's not right. I, I just don't no. get it. There's no voice no. for the victim's family, and there's exactly. no voice for the victim as well. You're so, right, and yeah. I'm trying to be a voice for my child. And I have for 13 years, and I promised Joseph I would be his voice. That's my child. That's my heart. And we know Joseph did nothing wrong. He did nothing at all. He was just standing there waiting to use the bobcat, and Paul Godwin was envious jealous had hate in his heart he had no remorse whatsoever and he he pushed joseph into it he knew the next move was going to be that that bobcat was going to be backing up and joseph was just waiting and he pushed him into it and there's just no doubt about it, it it's all proven i even hired a forensic engineer he said the same thing 
same thing. Wow. So now that you know what you know, it's been 13 years, what's next? Well, I'm talking to you, Ed. Okay. And what I'm saying is that, you know, I I have had, um, I, you know, I have a Facebook, uh, a Joseph, Justice for Joseph um, on my Facebook page. I have my own Facebook page. I have um, a Twitter account. I have um, a LinkedIn account about it. I've written a book about it called The Scent of My Son in God We Trust. It's a, it's a book about everything that happened, a true story, you know, a novel about it. And um, I, um, uh, you know, I have all the, I exercise my Freedom of Information Act rights because they closed my son's case on an impossible scenario. But I, I, it took them four months to send me everything. But they finally did. They sent everything to me. So I have all the documents. And um, I um, have my own website. And, you know, I'm getting Joseph's voice out there. Because all of this is, it's absolutely horrific. It is horrific. And it is for, for the police. I know, you know, we all respect police. You know, they put their lives on the line for us every day. But there are some rotten, corrupt police. There are. And we all know mm-hmm. it. And they stand behind these laws that are immunity laws. Qualified immunity, absolute immunity. It gives police a green light to do and act in any way they choose without ever being held accountable. Mm -hmm. And those laws need to be reformed. They have to be. It leaves families and victims with no recourse whatsoever to obtain justice. They're wrong. Our justice system is broken. It's a mess. I got two House bills passed um, a couple years ago, and I spoke in 2016 before the General Assembly in Annapolis to try to pass House Bill 874, Joseph's Law. Jill Carter was the um, was the delegate who represented me, and it was to have, and I said everything, everything that occurred, who was involved, and that they ha- I urged for the immunity laws to be reformed. But none of the judiciary would agree. None of them. Wow. Only Jill. Wow. And there, I'll tell you, Ed, when you listen now and you watch the news, that is a hot topic right now. It is. Hmm. And these immunity laws, um, even Kamala Harris, you know, who's one of the uh, candidates for president and other others, even in Baltimore, um, they're talking about transparency and they're talking about gag orders and things that, you know, and and these immunity laws. And it makes the police like it's like a recipe for them to think they're above the law. No one can touch them. Well, none of us are above the law. None of us. Yep, I agree. They're, they're not. They're not. They're not going to keep beating me down. They've tried to beat me down for 13 years, and the harder they beat me da- down, the more the more I rise up. Yeah. The more I rise up. Good for you. That's my child, and I'm still fighting. And thank God for podcast. Yeah. Because the podcasts are giving families and victims a voice. Sometimes the news, they have their own agenda. They won't always carry everything. They did in the, first, in the beginning. All the news stations ran my story. You know, I've talked to Dateline. Um, there's a story on Dateline, a spotlight story. Um, I'm working with, um, you know, podcast people. I have an attorney who stands by me and has been by my side for four years. He knows it's all true. He's studied everything. 
his colleagues, and they said, there's no doubt your son was murdered. There's no doubt. So oh. I carry on. I'm, I am on this journey for justice for my son, for Joseph, and I will continue okay. until I take my last breath and beyond. Good for you. I'm proud of you. You're supposed to. Thank you, Ed. The thing is, you know, you shouldn't even have to go through this. You you shouldn't even have to, you know, knock on doors and beg for help, beg for justice. I know, Ed, but that's what it comes to. Yes, it is. That's what it comes to with our judicial system. Yes. And they want to shut you up. They want to, like, you know, beat you down. They want to shove my son's death under the rug, like as if his life didn't even matter. And I'm just saying, you know, Paul Godwin, he lives 25 minutes from here. You know, um, he works for Constellation Energy now. And I'm just saying, when when we were at the closing meeting, it was about 12 of the Maryland State Police, and I brought a lot of family members and uh, a local senator and he brought his attorney, and it was so obvious what they were doing. They were lying right to our faces and making no sense. And even the reconstructionist for the Maryland State Police, he was there, and I said, why did you never do a reconstruction for my son? He was killed on a road. The Maryland State Police do reconstructions all day, every day. Why not for my child? And the reconstructionist he, he, like, he said, I was never called. I was never called. And I said, why? And I asked the commander, you know, Lieutenant Dean Richardson, and they just didn't answer me. And there was a mm. Lieutenant Colonel Ron Collison who works with them. He's the head, he was the head of Homeland Security and um, immigration and homicide and um, drug enforcement. And he was sitting there. He introduced himself as Thomas Coppinger, but his name is Ron Collison. He committed fraud. He lied about who he was. And then we asked the the um, the, detec the um, detective David Kitzinger, who was the one who first was on the case, and then Detective Bechtel went out with him, as I said, and took his Spanish interpreter, and they had him reconstruct the scene and everything, and he asked, you know... Um, Detective Bechtel and uh, Trooper Ramirez, they asked Antonio all these very specific questions. You know, he told the truth exactly. He got in the bobcat. He showed them how he moved the bobcat. And, you know, and when at the time that Joseph was killed, everything and everything lined up. He told the truth. And when they said, did Joseph ever, like, try to pull you out? Did Joseph ever, you know, jump in, try to, he said, never, never. Joe never jumped on a tire, ne never tried to pull me out. Joseph never did anything like that. Hmm. So Paul Godwin was trying to blame the victim and trying to make out like Joe. Joseph would never do anything like that, never. And it's impossible anyway. Like, in other words, it's so crazy. It's so, and he, then he changed his story like four times saying forward, then once he says backward, then, you know, he was, and again, he's refusing a polygraph. And then, um, and then when we said to Detective Bechtel, I'm sorry, when we said to David Kitzinger, where is Detective Bechtel's report? Because his report says it all. The good detective. Do you understand what I'm saying? Who went out in October, mm -hmm. went out to the scene, you know, had Antonio Rubio get in the same bobcat 
had him reconstruct everything. So we say, and Kitzinger went right with him, who was the one that was first, you know, um, conducting the investigation. But he was only a homicide detective for three years, and they're, they're the, the police put him on my son's case. Yet Detective Bechtel, who was a senior detective, who had at least 15, 18 years' experience, when they were at a meeting and all discussing their cases, he said, something's not right here to Detective Kitzinger. He said, something's not adding up here. So that was when Detective Bechtel got involved. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yes. And, and then he went out, with, went out to the scene with Kitzinger and Trooper Ramirez. So at, and, and we knew about this because I talked to the medical examiner. My family met with the medical examiner. People, and people need to knew, know that. That was one of the house bills I got passed, Ed, and it was that people need to understand they have a right to talk to medical examiners. They have a right to. It's the law. And so it was House Bill 120. And Jocelyn Pena Melnick, the delegate, she sponsored me then. And that was in 2009, I believe, 2008 or 2009. And me and another lady whose son was murdered, we spoke with the delegate. And they passed that bill right away. They said, of course, it's common sense. It makes perfect sense that, you know, a grieving family or a parent or anyone's loved one can ask the medical examiner questions when there's a questionable death. But people didn't know it. So the House bill, what it does now is with every death certificate, there's a letter attached to it that tells and informs the family you have every right to contact the medical examiners if you have any questions or just any, any sense of something not seeming right or any questions at all. So that's what the House bill does. Well, good. And I'm glad. Yeah. Because people need to know that. And with Dr. Ali, you know, and Dr. Fowler, we met with them, my family and I met with them a couple times, and we're trying to understand, you know, and they too had questions. And then, of course, when Detective Bechtel went down there in October and said to Dr. Ali, Dr. Ali, this is foul play here. And he started showing him some of the um, crime scene photographs that Dr. Ali had never seen. He'd never seen them. Hmm. And he said, oh, my God, like, like you would th- another bill should be, or something else should be, that when, when there's photographs at anyone's death, all of the photographs should go to the medical examiners, not just one. Not just, not, you're not going to just pick your one, right, Mr. Right. Policeman, and send only one. Everything should criminal, go to them, yeah, yeah, I agree. Of course. Yeah. Of course, the medical examiners are the ones that, they're the core of a case. They're, they're qualified experts with science, with physics, with evidence. They know. And he, Dr. Ali, did the autopsy of my son. He knew Joseph had no broken bones below his neck. He knew it. He said, none of this. It doesn't, it doesn't make sense. None of it. Joseph was already prone, already flat on the ground, just before the bobcat backed up. So how did he get flat on the ground? Yep. Well, we know that he was uh, he was punched, shoved, or something. So he was he was shoved, knocked, pushed, you know, shoved, propelled, or yeah. or, or, or or punched into it. And again, his soda's under the left front tire. Do you understand what I'm saying? Joseph wasn't fighting anybody. He wasn't he? Was just waiting. Yeah. And then also, Ed, when we asked Detective Corporal Kitzinger. When we asked him, where is Detective Bechtel's report, he said, who? Who? 
who's he? He acted like he didn't even know him. Do you under- and somebody else is kicking him under the table. The other sergeant's kicking his, with his foot, kicking um, Kitzinger under the table. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah. He went right with him. He worked right with him. And then the man that's wow. the colonel, Lieutenant Colonel Ron Collison, he turns beat red in the face, beat red in the face and says, just keep going, just keep going, just keep going. We couldn't ask any more about Detective Bechtel's report, but I ended up getting it all. Because when they closed my son's death on an impossible scenario, calling it an accident, we were all in shock. We were in shock, and we couldn't believe it. And even outside Unlimited, what I have found about, about them, Ed, is unbelievable. Un, that company is unbelievable. The man who owns the company, he happens to be, it's just interesting, his ancestry, he happens to be half Russian and half Mexican. And he frequents Mexico all the time. I talked to, uh, I talked to Kathy Rubio, to a former CIA agent, Dr. Jim Garrow, and um, uh, Mr. Bennett, who also was a former CIA, and the FBI I talked to. And they confirmed to me, it's all true here, Adrian. Everything you're saying is true. This man is involved in, in um, underground criminal activity, organized crime. He's involved in organized crime. Wow. Um, gun smuggling, um, human trafficking, drug smuggling, and then he's being protected. Wow. And it's unbelievable. That is unbelievable. It's, yeah. It is. Just telling you, this has got to stop. Well, That's yeah, I agree. I agree. It has you know, to stop. But, you know, we're we, all God's children. We're all equal. You know, we, we, we are all we are all one. Yep. And I say we must protest. We must become united and stand together. Yes. Because this affects all of us. All of us, Ed. And that's and what that's what everybody's got to do. They got to, you know, they got to stand up and work together. But in these cases, a lot of people don't. And these are the results. The prosecutors and the police that uh, they just end up doing what they want to do. They think they have exactly. And they think they have all authority because of the immunity laws. They have to reform them. I'm not saying there shouldn't be some laws, you know, to like, you know, if a police officer, if somebody's trying to accuse a police officer of something they didn't do, you know, but not this blanket immunity where the police, the police kill people even. They kill people. They cover up. They lie. They, they plant things on people. We all know they do. And, the, and then they get away with it because they have immunity. Yeah. Give me a break. Yeah, I Give understand. A, yeah, I understand. You know, Adrian, I, I, I understand. I'm with you all the way on it. But I want you to be able to um, constantly, you know, keep his name out there. I want you to take this last minute to let everybody know how they can find you on Facebook and give just a small brief of how they can find your book. Okay. Um, well, my book is called The Scent of My Son in God We Trust. It's on Amazon, so if you just go to Amazon and in the search, you just put the scent of my son. Scent is S-C-E-N-T, but it has two meanings, actually. The scent, because a penny was found in my son's pocket, that um, there's an old song called Pennies from Heaven, and I made it into a necklace, and I never take it off. And the words I saw were in God we trust. So that's the book. 
the um, my uh, you can see on my Facebook page if you just look under my name it's Adrian Miranda A D R I E N N E Miranda M I R A N D A and you'll see also Justice for My Son Joseph a page for justice dedicated to justice for my son and my website is www.thescentofmyson.com and I also have um, there's a newspaper article that the Baltimore Sun did um, and if you google my name you'll see that if you put in the Baltimore Sun and the date is um, October 15th 2011 it was a front page story and that's when the medical examiners changed the death to a homicide to a homicide okay and also um, I've done many many radio online interviews there's one with uh, it's called cancel the cabal cancel the cabal c-a-b-a-l is cabal okay. with Stephen Roberts and that's on YouTube okay so there, there are a lot of ways to find out information and I will never stop at that's my right. That's right. Do not stop. My child and I'll never stop fighting for justice for my son, for my child. And I pray there will be a greater good. And for all mothers and parents that have buried their children. And they know that, you know, um, there's lies, there's cover up, there's corruption, that they get justice. Yeah, I justice agree. Justice for Joseph and justice for all. That's right. You, my sweet Joseph, I love you and I'll never stop fighting for him. Awesome. He's my, he's That's awesome boy. of you. Well, you get you get some information to me when we get our website back up and running. Um, we can help you get you know getting that out there. Okay, okay. Well, thank you for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. And like I said, we will you get us some stuff to us. We will put put it on our website when we get it back oh, up and thank running. Thank you so much, Ed. Thank you so much. I deeply, deeply appreciate it. You're, all that you're, you're doing. Welcome. Thank you're welcome. You. So uh, God we, bless you. Yes, and we will stay in touch. I promise you. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, you have a good evening.